0: Good morning again, everyone. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 17? And once again this morning, we want to read verses 14 through 17, where Jesus is praying to his Father the night before his crucifixion. And he said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We started um, a series last week, which we've entitled The Word of God. And of course, the key verses, verse 17, where Jesus, on the night before his crucifixion, prayed to his Father that, his disciples, not just those back then, but all of us throughout the church age and including those sitting here this morning, that the Father would sanctify them by his truth. And Jesus said, Father, your word is truth. If you study John 17 carefully, as we pointed out last week, the underlying principle or idea that's coming through is the idea of warfare. Jesus Christ is praying to his Father that the Father might give victory to his disciples, those that followed Christ, that they might be overcomers. That, not that they would be taken out of the world, but that they would be victorious in the world to be a light, to be a light in the darkness, to be used by God, to continue the work Jesus began in seeking and saving those who are lost. And of course, they're going to be confronted by the world, which Satan is in control of. And the thing that is going to give them victory, including all of us, is the word of God. Now, Jesus divided the whole world, although not equally, into two groups. The children of God and the children of the devil. And he said that you can always know a child of God. Because the children of God, well, they love and practice the truth. They love and they practice the truth. Jesus said in John Chapter 18, verse 37, he said, For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He said in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And then John said in his first epistle, chapter 4, he said, You are of God, little children. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. And, of course, Jesus and then John and others in the New Testament which talked along these lines are saying, Look, the children of God are those who have embraced the truth, who love the truth, who practice the truth. That's how you can always tell a child of God from somebody who is... Not of God, or is a child of the devil. Because the children of God love and practice the truth. But Jesus went on to say that the children of the devil, well, they act and speak like their father, the devil. And that's how you can tell them. In fact, one day the Pharisees confronted Jesus and began to raise questions about whether or not he was legitimately born. That was a big thing, that Jesus was illegitimate. And so they contended that Abraham is our father, And Jesus said to them in John 8, 44, No, no, you're of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. Here, Jesus said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. From the beginning of what? From the beginning of the creation. And what he has in mind is the Garden of Eden. So I hope you realize that the first murder in the Bible was not Abel. It was Eve, followed closely by her husband, Adam. Satan killed both of them, of course, not physically, but spiritually. And the weapon that he used was deception. He lied to them. He lied to them. You see, in the Garden of Eden, there were probably hundreds or maybe even thousands of trees that God had planted for Adam and Eve to enjoy and to eat the fruit of. But there were two other things that were planted in that garden, two other things that would grow and develop and bear a fruit of sorts, not fruit to feed the body, but fruit to feed the soul. Because in that garden... God planted the truth, which was his word. He told Adam and Eve what they could do, what they could not do. He communed with them every day, which means he talked with them. He no doubt taught them the things on his heart. So the truth of God was in that garden, but something else was in that garden that Satan planted. It was the lie. You might call the the truth of God kind of like a, a little sapling, okay, for using the analogy of a tree, was like a little sapling planted in the garden of Judeo-Christianity. Starting out very small, God, of course, just giving them some basics. But as time went on, as the years and centuries passed, as God sent more and more prophets into the world to express His heart and teach His word, that knowledge grew, that tree grew, until Christ came and it came to fruition. And now we, who are connected to Christ, are the branches of that tree. And God is bearing the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of righteousness through us. Even as Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. It's my Father's will that you bring forth much fruit. And so we're kind of like the fulfillment or the culmination of what God intended when he planted the truth in that garden so many centuries ago. But Satan also planted The lie in that garden. And that lie has also grown and developed through the centuries and has become a tree that has filled the whole earth. And what it has filled the whole earth with is the evil, deadly fruit of false doctrine. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And, of course, the context there is that Jesus is warning his disciples against false prophets. In fact, if you back up to verse 15 of Matthew 7, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Uh, Who are these false prophets that come dressed in sheep's clothing? Well, listen to me. I don't believe that he's talking about people who come into the church as wolves looking like Christians. He could be, in part, talking about those. But I think what he's really trying to warn them against is Our leaders in the church, after all, a shepherd back then wore sheep's clothing. That was one of the benefits of being a shepherd. You got free clothes. You would, you know, shear the sheep, make them into clothes, and, you know, a shepherd was one who wore sheep's clothing. It's dangerous when a wolf comes into the flock of God and tries to sow false doctrine. It's a lot more dangerous and deadly and destructive when that false prophet comes in dressed like a shepherd. And takes over the flock. That's really deadly. And that's what I believe Jesus Christ is really warning us in these verses. He said, you're going to know them by their fruits. And then John said in his first epistle, chapter 4, he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. These false prophets are kind of like spiritual pied pipers. And they play their little doctrinal heresies and people flock to them. You know, I wish people would flock to the truth as quickly as they flock to lies. I think it was Mark Twain who said that a lie can run around the entire world while truth is still lacing up its sneakers. I think that's probably true. I mean, I can't tell you how quickly... I mean, lies spread so much more quickly than the truth does. But these would be like spiritual pipers that would lead untold millions to hell. And that's why Jesus said, and I'm backing up a little farther in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, to verse 13. Because there's a context here. And I'm backing into it, but I want you to see it. Where Jesus said in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in through that gate that leads to hell. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, Jesus said. And there are only a few who find it. Then he says on the heels of that, beware of false prophets who come to you dressed in sheep's clothing. See, he wants to warn us that there are two roads. They're both marked this way to heaven. This way to God. The broad way is not marked this way to hell or this way to atheism or whatever else. It's marked this way to heaven. It's broad. It's tolerant. It's inclusive. It doesn't make any demands in your life. It lets you believe whatever you want and still promises that you're going to get to heaven. The other way is narrow and difficult. And it's the only way that does lead to heaven. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So that narrow way is the way of Christ. And I envision these false prophets like spiritual traffic cops standing, you know, at the entrance to the Broadway and waving people on down as we see today. So many are doing. And people think that they're walking down the path to God. And it's really the path that leads to hell. Even as the psalmist or the writer of the Proverbs said, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end thereof, it's the way of death. So spiritual deception is a very dangerous thing. It's what Satan used to kill Adam and Eve spiritually in the garden. It's the thing he uses, has used all throughout the history of mankind. And Jesus said that the spiritual deception would grow dramatically just prior to to his second coming, especially when the Antichrist and his partner, the false prophet, rise to power on the world scene. Jesus warned us of this time in Matthew chapter 24. He said, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the elect. See, I have warned you beforehand. Jesus is telling us that these people, when they come, will have real power, real spiritual power, and they'll be able to do what's called lying signs and wonders, miracles that are designed to deceive people. Jesus said the only way to guard against their false prophecies, their, their, their lies, is to know the truth. That's why it's so important that we understand and know the truth. Because Paul, writing to Timothy, said, The Spirit expressly says to us that in the last times, the last days, the time just prior to Christ, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Did you know that demons have doctrines? You know what the word doctrine means? Teaching. Teaching. Do you know that demons are teachers? Maybe you didn't think of it that way. The Bible is teaching us that demons are teachers. You say, well, what do they teach? Well, that's a very good question. They teach what some have called the cosmic gospel. Now, those that embrace this cosmic gospel do not believe that they got it from demons. They believe they got it from ascended masters out in the astral plane. They believe that they got it from the spirits of departed loved ones who are communicating to them from the other side. In fact, it's the same message that people have heard from extraterrestrials after having encountered US, UFOs and had visits, you know, third, uh, close encounters of the third kind. Those are real. That movie was based on truth. There are many people who have had contact with ex- extraterrestrials, aliens. Now, do I think that they're little green men from Mars? No, absolutely not. I think they're demons masquerading as aliens. But it's the same message that people are getting in seances or while on LSD trips, which the Bible calls sorcery and expressly forbids. The same message they're getting in deep yoga trances while practicing transcendental meditation. The message is coming out of Ouija boards and through mediums that are in contact with the spirit realm. It's the same basic message in the cults and occult alike. It's a message that is flooding into our world from a dozen different directions, all at the same time, and proclaiming the same thing over and over again with amazing consistency. These doctrines are really fourfold. And together, they make up the same lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's interesting to me that the very lie that Satan used to cause the human race to fall in the beginning is going to be the same lie he is going to use to cause the human race to fall in the end. This ultimate deception is what the Bible calls the lie. Not a lie, but the lie. It's a very specific satanic lie that the devil planted in the Garden of Eden, and it's been growing and developing over the centuries, and soon the whole world is going to be partaking of its Evil, ultimate forbidden fruit. Even as the Bible warns us in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. See, in Revelation chapter 9, at one point during the tribulation period, Michael the archangel along with the angels of God do battle against the devil and his demons and cast him out of heaven and lock the door behind him. You say wait a minute. Satan's in heaven? Yes, Satan has access to heaven. The book of Job teaches us that. The idea that Satan is ruling in hell is ridiculous. That's that's nonsense. That's fairy tale stuff. When Satan gets cast into hell, he's going to be suffering like everybody else in hell, and more than anybody else. He's not going to be ruling. But right now he has access into heaven. But there's coming a time when God is going to cast him out. And he's going to come down to the earth to feed the human race this final, ultimate deception that he has been feeding them a little bit here and there throughout human history. Of course, the, the uh, mystery of iniquity is already at work, the Bible says. But here it's going to come to fruition. And Satan is going to feed this lie to the entire human race, even as he did to Adam and Eve so many years ago. It's interesting that in Revelation 12, we see Satan cast out of heaven. He comes down to the earth, and then in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, we see the Antichrist and the false prophet rise to power because they are going to be the spokespeople for this lie. Now... In Second Thessalonians chapter 2, you might want to turn there, Paul talks about the coming of the Antichrist, and in verse 9 he said, the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. In the Greek, those are real miracles, but they will be miracles designed to deceive and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Folks, listen to me. If a person goes to hell, it's not because God wants them to go there. It's because they love their sin more than they love God. They're not willing to come to the love of the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and receive it that they might be saved No, instead, they'd rather pursue their sin and live unrighteously. And because they have turned their back on the truth, God said, fine. You don't love the truth? You love lies and deception? Fine. Then you're going to be fed the ultimate lie and the ultimate deception. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe what? The lie. You say, well, what is this lie? Well, in Romans chapter 1, Paul kind of gives us a little more. He said in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 21, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. It's always interesting to me when I see a very intelligent person who's rejected Jesus Christ and the truth. The ridiculous, goofy, nonsensical things that they embrace in the name of truth—it's really amazing stuff that a normal person that hasn't been messed up in their mind through all that higher education. Not that I'm putting that down necessarily, but you've got to be careful. I mean, a normal person with common sense looks at that and goes, nobody would believe that but an idiot. And yet some professor or some intellectual, they're embracing it with all their heart. Professing to be wise, they became fools and listened to the result of it and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged, listen, the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. So this lie in part is all about rejecting the true God to worship and worshiping the creation as God. Hold on to that. That's going to feed into what we're going to, where we're going next. I guess the best way to really understand the lie is to go back to the very beginning where Satan first fed it to Eve. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Now, we read these verses last week, but I want to revisit them because I want to really look at what this lie is. And starting in verse 1, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This lie that Satan told Eve was really made up of four different false doctrines. And let me say this, you can find these four doctrines in part or in total in every false religion, cult, occult, and humanistic teaching on the face of the earth. And we'll look at some of those next time. But right now, let's just focus on what this lie is. It has four elements to it, four basic parts. Let's look at the first one. The first part of this lie is this, that God is not personal, but an impersonal force that fills the universe and everything and everyone in it. See, when Satan came to Eve, one of the things that he suddenly planted into her mind was this. It was the concept that the person that she had come to know as God was not God because of who he was, but was God because of what he knew. You see, he planted the idea, the concept, the, the teaching, if you will, in her mind that God, that person that she had come to know as God, was not really God because of who he was. He had learned to tap into a force that had made him God, a force that he wanted to keep her ignorant to. He didn't want her to understand what this force was all about, this God force, because he didn't want Eve tapping into it and reaching divinity and godhood as he had done. So here you have the first part of the lie, that God is not personal, he is an impersonal force. And of course, (laughs) this was the main message that was being preached through those Star Wars movies, right? I mean, when the movie was all over with, and all the action was done, as you left the theater, what was the one thing that stuck with you? May the force be with you. You saw it on bumper stickers. It was big stuff. You say, come on, nobody really believed that. Oh, really? When that movie first came out back in the 70s, I saw some theaters were packed, people waiting in long lines to get in. They interviewed some of the people. One guy said, man, they said, well, why are you waiting in in this line to get into that movie? The guy says, in all seriousness, the force is in there. I've got to get in there. As the Force is in there. Okay. George Lucas, the creator of those Star Wars movies, said that these movies were his attempt to preach the gospel of the Force. George Lucas is the Billy Graham of the Force. You may not have known that. I'm serious. You know, people... In Hollywood, get upset with us pastors because we get up behind a pulpit and we tell people what God has said, and we tell people what's right and what's wrong, and they get very angry with that. What right do we have to preach to anybody else on how to live? What? What a bunch of hypocrites! Who am I preaching to? I mean, what? Maybe 150 people. When they preach their message, they've got millions of dollars to work with and millions of people that they reach with with their agenda. And believe me, every movie has an agenda, has some kind of a philosophy or something that it's preaching. George Lucas said these were his attempts to preach the gospel of the force. Of course, the force, like electricity, is impersonal, and amoral, right? I mean, electricity is a force. That's amoral. It's impersonal. And this force is also impersonal and amoral. An amoral force isn't going to hassle you with morals, right? I mean, if God is a force, then it means that I'm not held to any personal God's standard of right and wrong. And in fact, those who believe in the doctrine of the force don't believe in moral absolutes. Because there is no personal God to impose upon us his standard of right and wrong. In fact, God is in you. The force is in you. All you need to do is look within to find your truth and to find out what's right and wrong for you to do. You see, people that are that have embraced this teaching, they don't believe in moral absolutes. And so you hear things like, "Well, that's your truth," or "That's my truth." All of a sudden, truth is subjective. It's based on my opinions, my feelings. When Jesus said very clearly, Father, your word is truth. And it's not subjective, it's absolute. So that's the first element of the lie, that God is not personal, he is an impersonal force. The second element of the lie that Satan told Eve was that there is no ultimate death. When he said to her, you will not surely die, he was saying, Eve, there is no ultimate death. Of course, that became the basis for the doctrine of reincarnation. Reincarnation is the process of spiritual evolution, whereby our spirit keeps being reincarnated upon the earth, each time hopefully living a more righteous life, a more spiritually enlightened life until we finally evolve into godhood. You see, the reasoning goes like this. We are all part of the God force. The God force is eternal. So if my body dies, my spirit never really dies because it's part of this eternal God force. It just keeps getting recycled into a new body. That's what, uh, what uh, reincarnation is. It's just a spiritual recycling program. You just keep getting recycled, the real you, the spirit, into a different body. This we also saw being taught through those Star Wars movies. Those of you who saw those movies remember when Obi-Wan Kenobi was struck down by Darth Vader. He didn't cease to exist, did he? He continued to communicate with Luke Skywalker as a disembodied spirit from out on the astral plane. I mean, that's what Hinduism in the New Age believes and teaches, that when we die, our spirit simply moves out onto the astral plane where we wait for a new body to be reincarnated into. In other words, there is no ultimate death. Of course, the main problem with the doctrine of reincarnation is it does away with the reality of judgment and hell. Even though the Bible says very clearly, God has appointed that we die once, and after this comes what? The judgment. After this comes the judgment. The Bible teaches very clearly that someday every person who has ever lived is going, be, is going to be resurrected, not reincarnated, resurrected. To stand before God and give an account of how they live their life. And those that have received Jesus Christ into their hearts as Lord and Savior, His blood has paid all their debt, the sin that they committed throughout their entire life. Their ledger is marked, paid in full by the blood of Christ. Those people who have refused to come to Christ are going to stand before God, the books will be opened, and they will be judged according to all the things that they did in this life. Reincarnation does away with all of that. Reincarnation says there is no judgment after death. You just keep getting another chance to come back to the earth to try to do better next time. Well, that's not much motivation for me to stay away from evil. I mean, let's face it if you take away the consequences of sin, which is judgment, well, you you take away the restraints from a person doing evil. You give them license to sin, basically. Uh, Let's put it in this context. What if tomorrow our country just abolished our justice system? All the courts, jails, police officers, our whole system of justice and jurisprudence was just abolished. What kind of effect would that have on our society? It would be absolute anarchy, survival of the fittest, the strong killing the weak, and so on. It's those consequences for breaking laws that keep most people, hear me, most people in line. Of course, many love our law-abiding. They would not think of doing anything to hurt anybody else because they love law and they love righteousness. Those people that don't love the law all that much fear consequences, and so that keeps most of them in line. But if you remove the consequence of sin, Judgment and hell, it just causes people now to sin without fear. There is no fear of God before the rise, the Bible says, and that's why people are bent on doing so much evil. Now, this has been around for many, many, many centuries, selfishness and, of course, Satan encouraging people to be lawless. But it's going to really increase as we come into the end, when Jesus is about ready to return. Because Paul said, in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And because of it, they will be violent and boastful and haters of good, haters of parents, and so on and so forth. When there is no fear of God, there is a love of self. And when you love self above all else, well... It's just a license to go out and do whatever you please. Now, reincarnation, if you didn't already know this, works according to the law of karma. What is the law of karma? Karma is the spiritual law of cause and effect. What does that mean? Well, those that believe in karma believe that whatever you do in your present life will have an effect On what happens to you in the next life. So if you murdered somebody in this life. In the next life. somebody's going to have to murder you. It's cause and effect. It's kind of like Satan's version of what you sow you reap. But it's kind of over multiple lifespans kind of a thing. But the idea is whatever you do in this life. If you're kind to people now. You'll come back in the next life. And people will be very kind to you. And so on and so forth. That's how reincarnation works. It works according to the law of karma. But I think that karma has got to be one of the cruelest jokes that Satan has ever played in the human race. Because it robs from man some of the most basic, beautiful, and important attributes that God has given to us. Remember, we were created in his image. Who is our God? Well, among other things, he is kind and loving and generous and merciful and gracious. Karma removes all of that. See, if you're a true Hindu and you really believe in karma with all your heart and you're walking down the street and you see some homeless beggar who is starving, you can't go over and help him. You can't go over and give him anything to eat because he's working off some bad karma from his previous life. Obviously, in his previous life, he was very selfish and greedy and didn't help anybody and hoarded his food and hoarded his goods. And saw people that were in need and passed them by. You can't help him because he's got to work off that bad karma. If you go and help the guy, you're actually hurting him because now we'll have to come back and do it all over again. So you've got to let him work off that bad karma. Walk on by, man. Don't, don't help him. He's got to suffer, he's got to pay for the sins of his past life. And I'm sure that as people have bought into this, look at the suffering in India. Look at the suffering in India. You know, the Indian people are very intelligent people. They come to this country. They're engineers and they're doctors and, and you know, surgeons and just they're brilliant people. But they act very dumb in their own country. You know why? Because if it's, it's Hinduism. They take the food. Children are starving. People are starving. They take the food, give it to the rats, give it to the cows. Because they worship the rats and the cows as gods. They've got 330 million gods that they worship in India. And it's their faith in Hinduism that makes them do stupid things. It's a lie that Satan has foisted on them that is causing millions to die. I'm sure he laughs his head off as he watches the suffering that could be alleviated. But because of the lie he has fed into that culture how they walk on by. In the name of helping somebody, they let them starve and suffer. The one who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. What a great way to carry out his dirty work. And let me just add this. Karma doesn't solve the problem of sin. It just perpetuates it. Because for every act of sin in this life, it requires the same sin in the life to co- next life. So if somebody's murdered in this life, well, if I murder somebody in this life, then in the next life, I have to be murdered. So every sin has to be replicated in the next life. So far from solving the problem of sin, karma just perpetuates the problem of sin. Jesus Christ did away with sin when he died on the cross and died for the sin of the whole world. And he said, whoever wants to come to me and receive me, will have everlasting life because I paid the debt. He didn't just cover sin. As John pointed out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ solved the problem of sin. Karma just perpetuates it. And let me say this in closing because we're only going to get this far today. We'll have to save the the last last two elements of the life for for next week. I'm going to say something without fear of contradiction. By far, the charities and the hospitals and the orphanages that have been established around the world by far have been established by Christians, not by Hindus, not by Muslims, not by atheists. And you want to know why? It's not because Christians are so wonderful in and of themselves. It's because we serve a wonderful, kind, merciful, gracious, loving, compassionate God. And when we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, He moved into our hearts. The Holy Spirit did. And now He has shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. And we can't look at suffering without wanting to do something to alleviate it. When that tsunami hit last Christmas time over in Sumatra, in Indonesia, and thousands and thousands of people died, the first ones on the shores there passing out food and water and helping people were Christians. The Muslims were blown away. Many of them had never really seen Christians in action. God used a tragedy to bring the light of the gospel to these people. But we were there because we care. And we care because Jesus lives in our hearts. Before I got saved, I didn't care about anybody but myself and my family maybe. If people had problems, hey, (laughs) that's your problem. I've got my own problems. But now that I've become a Christian, your problems are my problems. Your suffering is my suffering. And I can't look at people in one part of the world that are hurting and suffering and I want to do something to help them. That's because of Jesus Christ. That's because of our God. It's the Christians of this world that reach out to the poor, the broken, the orphaned, the widowed, the hurting, the helpless, the hopeless, those rejected. It's because of Christ. Christ. It's important that we understand the lie of the devil, if we're going to combat it with the truth of God. So we have to lay some groundwork. We've called this series "The Word of God," and yes, we are going to look at the word in depth in the weeks to come. But I want to see it as a, I want you to see it as a bigger in the bigger realm. That yes, the word of God is truth, but we're using it to fight against lies. The lies of the devil, which he is using not to kill people's bodies, but to kill their souls, which will be forever. And so it's good for us to understand the lie, that we might be able to combat it with the truth. So hang in there, all right? Next week we'll continue looking at the lie and seeing, as we talked about Satan planting this lie in the Garden of Eden and how over the centuries it has grown up into this massive tree And many things have branched out from it. We'll look at some of those starting next week. So hang in there. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Father, give us as your people such a passion and a love for for your truth. Lord, give us a heart that desires to live it. Not just listen to it, but to live it out in our daily lives. And Lord, give us compassion to take that truth and to gently and lovingly give it to people who have been deceived by the lies of the devil. They are not our enemies, Lord. Our enemies are not flesh and blood, but principalities and powers the forces of Satan in the spirit realm feeding into this world through false prophets and false teachers, the lie of the devil, which is causing millions to be, to be condemned to hell. Lord, we have been called to seek and to save those who are lost. And the only way to do it is with the truth. But we need to understand the lie somewhat. So help us, Lord, to be students of the word, to understand the lies of the devil, that we might be more effective servants of Christ, soldiers of Christ, who fight the good fight of faith. We thank you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.